Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure that you automatically hear about each episode, sign up for our RSS feed either at iTunes or the radio page of our site, which is creatingafamily.org slash radio show, or any podcast directory that you use to access um, uh, podcasts. You can subscribe there as well. Today's show is going to be on genetic testing, both preconception and during pregnancy. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We're a nonprofit providing education and support for infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. For many patients, cost can be a barrier to pursuing fertility treatment. That's why Faring is now offering a savings card for their endometrin vaginal insert. This instant savings card offers up to $50 savings each month on your endometrium prescription for eligible patients. To get more information, you can talk to your doctor. If you've enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. So if you have an iTunes on your computer or your phone, just type in the words creating a family and then rate it. And if you've got an extra minute, we would really appreciate if you leave us a comment as well. I blog on topics of interest to those involved with either infertility or adoption three times a week, and a recent one you might like is titled Making Progress, Telling the Kids in Sperm and Egg Donation. Uh, We uh, are seeing there's been some research and some evidence that we are um, making some progress on parents' willingness to disclose their child's uh, conception through donor gametes. Uh, and I think that's a good thing, and uh, we talk about it in this blog and talk about uh, give you resources for telling your child. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors, including Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 20 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They are pioneers of the first embryo adoption slash embryo donation program called Snowflakes. And you can get more information about both of those by clicking on their logo on the right-hand side of uh, our site. As you just heard, Creating a Family is a nonprofit. One of the ways we pay our bills is through our wonderful sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased, accurate information and supporting you on whatever your path is to achieving parenthood. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. You've just heard about a few of our gold sponsors, but we also have other sponsors, and they are listed on the uh, infertility service provider page of our site. So if you are looking for an infertility clinic or for a genetic testing facility or for a sperm bank or for an uh, egg donation or any, any, anything having to do with infertility, please make your first stop the Creating a Family database on our service provider page. You can search by location, services provided, years in operation, a whole host of criteria we think are important. 
And when you choose someone off that database, you help support us, and we thank you. Today's show is on genetic testing, both preconception and during pregnancy. Our guest is Dr. Mark Evans. He is the medical director at Comprehensive Genetics and professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He is also the president of the Fetal Medicine Foundation of America, president of the International Fetal Medicine and Surgery Society Foundation, and past president of the Central Association. Association of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and he has won multiple national research awards, including the President's Award for Achievement by the Society of Gynecologic Investigation. And I should also (laughs) add that in my mind, his greatest achievement is that he is a sponsor of Creating a Family. Welcome back, Dr. Mark Evans, to Creating a Family. Dawn, it's a pleasure to be back and to uh, I share in the enthusiasm for the mission of creating a family and all the good that you've done for the thousands and thousands of couples around the world who listen in and can take your advice. Well, thank you so much. And we need your help today. There seems to be a, um, I guess it's maybe not a complete overstatement to say a mass hysteria going on about what's happening in genetic testing. And, And there's so much confusion about what's available, what you should do, what it can do, what it can't do. So, you are here. This is your your mission today, whether you want it or not, is to explain it all so that we it's crystal clear. We need a dummies guide here. So uh, yes, not that you're the dummy that nor are we actually, but nonetheless, we need some help uh, deciphering all this. So, okay, what? Let's start with uh, uh, preconception, and and let's start with what couples can do before. They get pregnant, and, and and by that I mean people who are infertile as well as as non-infertile. Okay, so right. what, you're a thinking about of, getting pregnant. What do you do? A, a lot of the issues that we're going to be talking about today apply equally to everybody as they do to the infertility po- uh, population, who of course is often more acutely aware of what's going on. Uh, right. But the re- the issues are really generic, and in fact, you know, I'll tell you, even when I have obstetricians as patients. We go back to square zero and start over because what I have found is even if you're a physician, when it's you, everything you learned in school goes out the, in one ear and out the other and out the window. So we go back yeah, to well. the beginning. So let's yeah. go back to the beginning, okay, which yeah. is that 2 to 3% of all babies are born with some sort of serious problem. If we include the minor things, it can be 5 or 6%. We can divide the basic genetic problems into three categories. First, to the Mendelian disorders, for example, if you're African-American, we're talking about sickle cell. If you're Jewish, we're talking about Tay-Sachs disease and now a whole bunch of other disorders. Different ethnic groups have different uh, predilections towards certain diseases, and there are others that are pan-ethnic that it really doesn't matter uh, what your background is. And for, for example, uh, the carrier frequency for cystic fibrosis in the white Christian population is about 1 in 25 so that if you have two French people, uh, Christian background as a couple, uh, nope, before we've even thought about laboratory testing, the chance that, and if they have no family history, the chance that she is a carrier for cystic fibrosis is roughly 1 in 25. The chance that he is a carrier for cystic fibrosis is also 1 in 25. So the chance that both of them are carriers is 1 in 625. Now, if you remember, cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive disorder, So there's a 50-50 chance that each one of them would donate the affected gene, or one in four that both do. So when you multiply that all out, it comes out to one in 2,500. 
Now, that number doesn't change whether you are 18 years old, 38 years old, or 58 years old. Your well, chance of infecting a carrier is the same, and it doesn't change. The second group are multifactorial disorders, like some of the cardiac defects, some of the spinal defects, uh, some of the psychiatric defects. These are things that sometimes run in families. There are some ethnic differences in the incidence. For example, spinal defects, encephaly and spina bifida, are much more common in people of Irish background than they are, say, of people of Japanese background. Really? Uh, yes. And some of that is nutritional. Some of that is genetic. I mean, for example, the Irish, who in Ireland had the highest incidence in the world, and back during the potato blight, uh, was as high as over, was one in a hundred. Irish people who moved to Boston had their incidence cut in half. The Japanese in Japan have among the lowest incidence in the world of spinal defects, but Japanese who moved to Hawaii had their incidence double. Yet there was still a tenfold difference in overall incidence between the between the groups. But for multifactorial disorders, again, the age of the parents doesn't matter. The final group are the chromosome abnormalities, such as Downs, and here, age of the mother is, in fact, the principal driver in most cases. And for example, just to give you an idea, while too many people focus in on Down syndrome, Down syndrome, Down syndrome, it really is just an example of one of many things that can go on. I mean, patients sit in my office every day of the week and they say, doctor, I'm concerned about having a baby with Down syndrome. What they really mean is they're concerned about having a baby with a serious problem, and Downs is the name they happen to know. It's like mm -hmm. when we were kids, and your mother might send you to the grocery store to go buy her some Jello. You didn't know back then that it was a brand name, and there were five other brands you could have bought. You thought it was the product. Mm -hmm. And if this show gets listened to in England, we can talk about vacuum cleaners or really Hoovers over there. You know, in England, the vacuum cleaner is called a Hoover right. after the company. And, yes, there are other brands you can find, but it's still called a Hoover. But the bottom line is that in both analogies, it represents a class of problems but only labels one of them. And this is where some of the mass hysteria that you mentioned really is coming in is because we're getting much, much better at the identification of some of these problems but have a long way to go towards all of them and people are getting confused as to what we can do, what we can't do, and confusing a good screening result for one with a definitive answer against the other against the others. Yeah, and that's and that's a real hard one. But before we we start talking about that, you you said that one of the uh, primary risk factors for chromosomal abnormalities, which is one of three major categories of birth defects, is, uh, uh, would be uh, age of the mother. For Correct. Chromosomal. For example. At, okay, on the basis of a traditional chromosomal carrier type, if you remember back to your high school biology, each of us normally has 46 chromosomes, which are really 23 pairs. Mm -hmm. One we got from our mother, one we got from our father. Numbers 1 to 22 uh, are irrelevant to your sex. The last pair, the sex chromosomes, women have two X chromosomes, men have an X and a Y. So when a woman makes her eggs, of those 46 chromosomes that she has, which are two ones, two twos, two threes, et cetera, and two Xs, 
one of each of them goes into the egg, the other one goes into the polar body, so you're down from 46 down to 23. Mm-hmm. That then meets up with a sperm that similarly has 23 chromosomes normally. Now, since uh, half of men are X and a Y, half the sperm will have an X chromosome, which then combines with the X chromosome from the egg to make a, make a girl. And if the sperm has a Y, it makes a boy. Where we get into trouble is particularly on the maternal side, is that in the splitting from 46 down to 23 chromosomes, there all too often can be a mistake. Now, a lot of these mistakes are so fundamental that the woman cannot even get pregnant or loses the pregnancy so early that in many cases she doesn't even know she was pregnant. Mm. Although uh, in, with infertility, uh, people are testing, they, they will know immediately to start yeah. testing. So one of the reasons we see so many miscarriages is that people are, um, these are some of the categories that would fall in, they're testing the second they can. Anyway, go ahead. Exactly, exactly. And in, in, in fact, if anything, we're picking up too many abnormalities that would ultimately not hold, but that's besides the point. Right. Uh, I mean, data going back decades suggested that for spontaneous conceptions, that of every hundred meetings of supposable viable egg, egg and viable sperm, only about 83 actually fertilized, only about 69 began to grow, only about 61 got past the time of the missed period, and eventually only wound up with 30 babies. And unless you are a teenager in the backseat of a car where you think it's a 100% conception rate, uh, that fundamentally you only the, the actual chance of conceiving a baby is not that great. Now, when you start looking intentionally, as you just correctly mentioned, particularly in IVF cases, we're finding all these abnormalities and putting a label on them, which under the uh, natural system uh, you never would have known about. Yeah, and it makes you fearful. Let me repeat those statistics because I love that. I'm not actually, of all the research I've done in all the years I've been doing this, I don't think I've ever heard it stated that way, and I really like it. Uh, so everybody listen up. If you, those of you who are hoping to catch it, you're going to catch it now. Correct me, Mark, if I'm wrong. Out of every 100 meetings of a sperm and an egg, 83 will fertilize, 69 will implant, 61 no, we'll will start make to grow. It. Even start to grow. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay, hang on. Let me write that down because I want to get that. Start to grow. Uh, 61 will make it to the two-week point after implantation. The period. That's, the mis-period. Yeah. It's about two weeks, right? Correct, yes. Okay. And, and eventually, only 30 will – you will get 30 live births. Correct. Interesting. I mean, I've, we've known that, but I've just never heard it broken down that way, which is – Ultimately, out of every meeting of a sperm and an egg, you get 30 babies. So that's fascinating. Okay, one of the like questions I said, unless, I you're, unless you're a teenager in the backseat of a car, in which case you get 120 babies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, or you have three kids and really don't want a fourth one. Well, um, as I, or, right, as I, as I often tell a couple sitting in my office, you, you have a very bad infertility problem. You're married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's an unfortunate thing. Um, the um, what about the age of the father? You've talked about that it is more likely for a woman to have uh, mistakes made in the splitting of her forty-eight, her paired uh, groups of chromosomes. Um, does the age uh, 46 of forty-six? Just to be 
1955, but we'll, we'll do better now. Uh, yeah, 40, <laughs> 46. 46. 40, just because you're a student of history, that's all done. Right? There you go. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm from way back. The age of the father for chromosome abnormalities doesn't really become important until men get into their 50s in which case it then begins to go up, but it's still a relatively minor component. What is important for advanced paternal age is the risk of certain mutations, and the classic one is achondroplasia, the dwarfisms. Now, while achondroplasia is an autosomal dominant disorder, meaning that if you have it, you have a 50% chance of passing it on to the next generation, and your gender and the, and the fetus's gender are irrelevant, 90% of all babies born with achondroplasia come from parents of normal stature. And it's because it was a mutation uh, in the process of conception, and it is disproportionately from the father and skewed to some degree to older fathers. Hmm. And we and have no doubt that there are other face. ones like this that we're just not aware of yet. Interesting. So what about the research, and I don't want to get off on this, but uh, uh, spending too much time on it, but the research that would indicate that there is a higher incident of autism and schizophrenia uh, of children born of fathers 50-plus, or maybe it's 40-plus. I actually well, don't know what's very, the Very good point, and one that is raised to us all the time by concerned parents. There is no doubt that the data show an increasing incidence of autism over the past 10, 15, 20 years. The question is why? And there is not, as far as I'm concerned, one simple answer. One of the things that we do know is that there's an increasing appreciation of it, an increasing diagnosis of it. So to some degree, there is an ascertainment bias. It's just like people who 40 years ago would have been called a lush are now being called al alcoholics. They're being given mm -hmm. a name to it. Sure. So mm -hmm. that's part of it. Having said all of that, I really do believe there is an increased risk with advancing parental ages, both maternal and paternal, the cause of which is not completely understood. One of the things we'll get to later in, in the show today when we talk about microarrays is we are finding that in about 20% of patients with autism, we can find a small chromosomal addition or deletion that is associated with autism. So if the incidence, just to be used round numbers, if the incidence of autism is now 1 in 100, some people say, I, I believe it's more like 1 in 120, but the point is 1% 1, 1 close enough, that yeah. in about 1 in 500 patients, by doing a CVS or an amnio with a microarray, we can find changes in the DNA structure that are linked strongly to autism. Well, no, let me ask a question. Okay, you can, this is pre-birth, either preconception, uh, I mean, not pre-implantation, pre or uh, uh, genetic testing during pregnancy. You can see an, am, uh, an, an addition or a deletion on the chromosomes. Can you, however, uh, say whether that addition or deletion, that abnormality, would uh, lead to autism? Or can you only then in say... In some cases, in some cases we now can. It's a minority of the cases. It's only about 20% of the cases overall, but it is a handle for some patients. So let me make sure I'm understanding. In 20% of the cases, you can say definitively, we believe that this particular deletion 
or, or abnormality, let's say. This particular abnormality will lead to autism. In the other 80%, you would be stuck with saying, we see that there is an abnormality. It may or may not increase your risk. No. Am, am I? Well, in, no, in okay. 20% of patients who have autism, we can find an abnormality in the gene structure that we know is the cause of it. In 80% of patients who have autism, we do not have a laboratory test that helps us. But, and, but going backwards to you've run the test and you're sitting there with a patient and uh, a, a mom and a dad and uh, and you see that there is this is the child has not been born. You can tell that there is a chromosomal abnormality. Uh, with what degree of certainty could you say that that abnormality is uh, will cause autism? In one in five hundred patients, we can be very certain that the child will have autism. Okay. It's still a small number but it's better than zero. That's true. We've made progress. Yeah, we've got a long okay. way to go because yeah. autism, like cancer, as far as I'm concerned, isn't one disease. There are a whole bunch of different pathologies going on. Well, that makes sense to me. Yeah, it makes good yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and we don't have a handle on most of them, unfortunately. Yeah. No, so it, it, it's very similar, for example, to BRCA testing and breast and ovarian cancer. If you have the BRCA mutation the chance of you getting breast or ovarian cancer can be 80%. However, the vast majority of people who have those cancers don't have the BRCA mutation. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So, all right, let's go back to, so now we were talking about uh, chromosomal abnormalities. Now, genetic testing, we, you've, we've mentioned that at the beginning that two to three of all births will have a serious problem. Uh, uh, would birth defect be the correct term there? It is the birth defect. It sometimes doesn't sound too nice, but it, in fact, it really is the correct term. Okay. So, and it encompasses uh, a whole spectrum of everything from lethal to not so much. Right. Okay. Um, okay, so we have a uh, – so two to three percent will have – and it, it breaks out into Mendelian disorders, multifactorial disorders, and chromosomal abnormalities. Correct. Correct. Now, what can uh, genetic testing tell us about our odds of having Mendelian, a multifactorial, or chromosomal abnormalities? Okay, so the, the, we approach the three of these things different, uh, differently. For okay. Mendelian disorders, we take a family history because sometimes we get, quote, lucky and find something at risk. Mm -hmm. For many of for patients of certain ethnic groups, like patients from Eastern European Jewish background, the so-called Ashkenazi Jewish population, there are a whole slew of disorders like Tay-Sachs disease, familial dysautonomia, Cadavin's disease, Gaucher's disease, that tend to run in the ethnic population. And we can do carrier screening to see if the mother, in fact, is a carrier for these autosomal recessive disorders, meaning it requires both the father and the mother to be carriers. If it turns out that the mother is a carrier for Tay-Sachs disease, then we would certainly want to go ahead and test the, the partner because if he is also a carrier for Tay-Sachs disease, then they have a one in four chance of having a baby with the full-blown disease. And that's when we would be doing prenatal diagnosis by CBS or amniocentesis to find out. Now, there, we have expanded dramatically our capabilities over the years, and there are now some companies out there offering as much as 100 different tests. But this is where we sometimes get into trouble because there's... Sometimes these panels screen for things with an incidence of one in a million. And I've seen patients who came into the office completely freaked because they 
the wife was told she was a carrier for a disorder that ordinarily occurs to one in a million people. The husband, however, was not a carrier, so the only risk of having a baby who's affected with this disorder is if the husband who tested negative actually has another what we call private mutation that we can't find because we don't know what to look for that, in fact, puts him at risk, and then they would have an affected kid. And mm-hmm. and for many, and you know, and people have come into the office, oh, my God, I have testing, I have testing, when the chance is actually so low by our standards that we wouldn't even think about it. Not to mention mm-hmm. we wouldn't even know what to do, because in this particular case I just described to you, we wouldn't know what we're looking for. And I don't think we should be telling her, who has a 50% chance of passing on that one that one trait mutation, that she should be considering terminating half the pregnancies when the fact the risk risk of having an affected kid is practically zero. And hence the uh, mass hysteria you were talking about at the beginning. Right, exactly. That's that's part of it. And, for example, we've had patients come in who where she was a known carrier for three disorders, he was a known carrier for two different ones, and therefore by my standards she was at risk for nothing, and the report said you're at risk for five diseases. And needless to say, that would scare anybody. Yeah. And so you you have to spend an hour calming these people down and teaching them the science so they understand what they are at risk for and what they're not at risk for. So mm-hmm. what this comes down to as far as I am concerned, and this does, in fact, is, in fact, ethnic group, I won't necessarily say specific, but certainly heavily influenced, uh, is two disorders that are in dispute by some people as to whether they should be screened for routinely are fragile X syndrome, which is an X-linked disorder, meaning it goes from mother to son, and spinal muscular atrophy, which is an autosomal recessive disorder. The American College of OBGYN has been resistant to telling everybody they should be offering screening for this, whereas the American College of Medical Genetics uh, has been much more uh, aggressive in suggesting that this should be screened for now, of course, being both an obstetrician and a geneticist, you get this total schizophrenia in your own head as mm-hmm. to what do you listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally come from what I refer to as the chutzpah school of obstetrics, which is I'd rather do more and take the risk of finding out stuff I don't want to know than not doing it and waiting back and seeing what happens. And so those, my recommendation We're still talking is, over the Mendelian at this point, right? We're all talk, this is all Mendelian disorders right now. So Mendelian, my okay. recommendation is that if patients come from a white Christian background – that they be offered screening for cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and fragile X. And if they want to consider the expanded pan-ethnic screening for these 100 disorders, that's a reasonable thing to do. But each people have to understand that we still need a lot more data on this and a lot more understanding of what we can do and what we can't do. And that for many of the disorders that some labs are providing screening for, there's actually no test online for prenatal diagnosis if you actually think you're at risk. For patients who come from a Jewish background of Eastern European origin, everything I just said plus the so-called Ashkenazi Jewish panel, which ACOG says is 12 tests, in New York it's common to do as much as 18. If you come from a Mediterranean background, Greek, Italian, then we do beta thalassemia, Fragile X and SMA, and in fact, the other population that's at risk for this disorder are the Asian Indians that are commonly not appreciated. If you come from a Asian background, then alpha thalassemia, fragile X and SMA, 
And if you come from an African background, sickle cell fragile XNSMA. And all of these disorders are completely age irrelevant. However, if we know you're not a carrier, it never changes. So you only have to be tested once to figure out whether you're a carrier or not a carrier. So the are second, people routinely, of all ages, routinely going through these testings now uh, if they're planning a pregnancy? If they show up in my office, they do. We certainly okay. would like everybody to have this and get it out of the way. Uh, you know, a friend of mine who died, unfortunately, about 10 years ago, John Fletcher, who was the bioethicist at the NIH and who also was the brother of the actress Louise Fletcher who played Nurse Ratchet in Cuckoo's Nest, uh, wrote a book about genetic counseling for clergy. This is going back to the early 80s. Oh, that's a good in book. In the United States today, back then it really hasn't changed, about 80% of first marriages and 60% of subsequent marriages are still performed by clergy. And if the clergy in meeting with a prospective couple would just ask a few simple questions about family background, a lot of potential suffering could be avoided. Hmm. I mean, for example, I had a couple many years ago who were from an Arabic background uh, and were first cousins, and, and that kind of consanguinity is very common in their culture. And they had had two children with an, one of these autosomal recessive nasty disorders that is lethal. The kids died by age two. That the husband got so disgusted at his wife for, quote, giving him these abnormal kids, because he decided it was her fault, of course, that he divorced her and then married her sister. Didn't quite get how this works. <laughs> and, of course, there was a very high, there was a two-thirds chance that the wife also, in fact, was a carrier. And so the point is that uh, – so there's a one-half chance that the wife, the wife was a carrier. Uh, and fortunately, it turned out that the second couple's kids were normal. But the bottom line is a lot of suffering and misunderstandings could be avoided if somebody who has some expertise in this would talk to people even before they think of having kids and not waiting until after you've had an affected kid to worry about it. Where online, is there some place on your site that you would uh, outline what you just said, which is the recommended, uh, conservatively recommended? Sure. Uh, if people go to our website, which is www.compregen.com, -E which, by the way, is short for comprehensive genetics, which will also work. Uh, there's a whole detailed explanation of all these disorders, what's at risk, what can be tested for, and what can't be tested for. That's okay, a simple perfect. way to get yeah. a comprehensive I mean, That might be, yeah. Let's go ahead and, and we'll just have, we'll, we'll recommend. All right, so that's the uh, Mendelian um, disorders. Right, the multifactorial disorders, which include some of the cardiac defects, some of the psychiatric defects, uh, some of the spinal defects, the best we can do is, if the family history doesn't turn up anything, is do ultrasounds as we normally do and hope we don't find anything. Okay, so they're more the uh, ultrasound-based. Right. The cardiac defects, spinal defects are things we see on ultrasound. Psychiatric defects, we generally have no clue what to look for. Yeah. Uh, but all we can do is the routine stuff and hope we find something. The final group are the chromosome abnormalities like Downs. And right. here, as I said, age of the mother is the principal factor. For example... In terms of the traditional karyotype, at age 30, the chance of having a baby with a chromosome abnormality 
is about one in three hundred is about one in three hundred and eighty, and Downs is about one third of it. At age mm-hmm. thirty-five, which is the magic number for traditionally for some people, the chance of having a baby with a chromosome abnormality total is one in one ninety, of which Downs is half of it, one in three eighty. At age forty, the risk is one in sixty-five, and Downs makes up about one in a hundred, and the pr- proportion and numbers just keep going up. Now, the concept of using age thirty-five as the point to offer prenatal diagnosis by their CVS or amnio goes back to a somewhat misunderstanding of the data going back 30 years ago. Back in the 70s and 80s, the age-related risks were generally lumped into five-year cohorts. So instead of having a risk for 29-year-olds, it was lumped 29 to 34, it was 30 to 34, 35 to 39, 40 to 44. And when you did that in the five-year cohort, you saw a big jump between 30 to 34 versus 35 to 39. In fact, if you look at it year by year by year, the slope of the curve really begins to go up about age 32, 83. Now, asking a woman how old are you is nothing but a cheap screening test. You may not be able to bill for it, but on the basis of that test, people have been putting patients into a low-risk category. You know, you're 34 years old in 11 months versus, oh, my, you're 35 years in one month. You must be now high risk. In fact, that demarcation point as a screening test only picks up about 30% of the abnormalities. The vast majority of chromosome abnormalities occur to women under 35 because there's so many more women in that age group getting pregnant. Right. The the risk of any given 36-year-old is much greater than any given 26-year-old. But from a public health perspective, most are Mm -hmm. in the younger age group. Now, disproportionately, however, most of our infertility couples are, quote, older, And in fact, if you look at the data from the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technologies, about half of patients having IVF are over 35 by themselves. About 4 or 5% are using PGD, which must be followed up with CVS. About 5 or 6% are using ICSI, which which increases the risk of chromosome abnormalities. And well, the bottom line is well over half of patients having IVF are also, by any conservative criteria, candidates for having prenatal diagnosis as well. Okay. And get. Go ahead. So, so well over half of the uh, IVF patients should also be considering PGD. Not PGD, prenatal diagnosis. P- no, P- PGS. P- no, okay. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is a, is a screening test. It alters odds. It does not give us a definitive answer, as far in mo- and particularly for chromosome abnormalities. Okay. It, it is better for Mendelian disorders, such as cystic fibrosis and Duchenne's, than it is for chromosomal disorders. Uh, my friend Mark Hughes did a study a few years ago where they looked at embryos from women who were analyzed for risk for Mendelian disorders like Duchenne's or sickle cell. And of those embryos that were found to be normal for the Mendelian condition that was looked at, that were then transferred and turned into a healthy baby, he later looked at the probes for the chromosomes and found that approximately 20% of those of those of those embryos that produced normal babies would have been thrown away because they would have mistakenly thought they were chromosomally abnormal. 
Oh, that's an interesting study. Right. And so one has to be extremely careful in how you interpret that data. And my answer to anybody who's had who calls up and says, I've I've had PG I've had PGD, therefore I don't need anything else is well not so fast. You've had a good screening test, it's a good start. But fundamentally all screening tests and PGD is a screening test as are uh the Mendelian tests we talked about, et cetera, are they fundamentally can be considered the same as the Gallup poll. They tell you who's leading. They don't guarantee you who wins the election. If you want the actual election results, we need a specimen of fetal tissue, either by CVS, usually at about 12 weeks, or by amniocentesis at about 16. Okay, stop there because I have to uh, announce the show again because this is I want to then talk to you a lot about the differences between CVS and amniocentesis. You are listening to Creating a Family. Uh, Creating a Family has the largest infertility communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. You can find me on Twitter at there's two places to connect with us: Dawn Davenport One or Creating a Family. Both of those are on Twitter. On Facebook, three places you can connect with us: Dawn Davenport One, or you can like our Creating a Family Facebook page, or you can join our Creating a Family Facebook support group. For either the page or the support group, the easiest way to connect, find them is just to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and they both pop up. You can like the page and join the group. Oh, and today we were listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about genetic testing with Dr. Mark Evans. Okay, Dr. Evans. Now, all right, so let me repeat what you've just said to make sure I understand. Okay, well over half of the patients, IVF patients, uh, would, by most people's, uh, anybody's criteria of determining who needs to be tested for uh, a birth, the, the uh, risk of birth defects, about half of them would fall into that category. And the first line of testing uh, would be a pregenetic diagnosis. Is that correct? Or would be, wouldn't that be called pregenetic screening? Uh, pre-implantation, I'm sorry, pre-implantation genetic screening. Wouldn't that be called that? Well, pre, if you mean pre-implantation genetic screening for Mendelian disorders, you can, but it gets confusing with the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis done on embryos from IVF. So oh, okay, that, okay, that is where I'm confused. Okay, so uh, what is the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for IVF? What does that tell us? Well, I, there's, IVF with PGD is done for couples known to be at high risk, usually a 25% risk of having a baby with cystic fibrosis, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or some other serious Mendelian disorder. Okay? okay? Everything we talked about in the first half of the show was just drawing a sample of blood from the mother. Oh, okay, so that's, okay, so what we've been talking about, right, okay, so that's just a blood sample from the mom, the, that, the preconception diagnosis that you're Correct. talking about. I mean, it can now be done talk- when she's pregnant, but we ideally done beforehand. Right, so that, yeah, exactly. Uh, before the, uh, what is it, the horse is out of the barn or cows out of exactly. the barn or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. whatever. Okay, the, um, okay, so now we're talking about we've got uh, couples who are infer- infertile. Um, they have embryos. What should they have their embryos tested for? Well, the, the first question is the extra cost and the potential risk of manipulating the embryos to get an actual diagnosis on it and the fact that it doesn't often, uh, it certainly doesn't guarantee the accuracy of it. And as I quoted you, the Dr. Hughes' work, that it tends to overcall abnormalities, uh, that 
would otherwise have a chance to turn into healthy children. And remember, the more oh, things we okay. look for, you know, is when we do testing on a we do IVF and PGD on a 40-year-old, it is not uncommon for the vast majority of embryos to, to to be found to be abnormal. And so you may harvest 10 embryos and only have one or two you can transfer. Transfer, and if you in fact overcalled an abnormality even only on one or two of them, then you may have substantially lowered her chance of getting pregnant. True. So I personally think PGD should be reserved for known high-risk cases rather than and, being used routinely on everybody. Um, okay. So the issue with that would then be that the couple would uh, the, 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 they would go through with the IVF. The transfer would be made. Let's hope that they get pregnant. And then they would have a what you would be recommending is a more definitive test uh, with either CVS or amniocentesis. Right. Now, my personal preference, because this is what we do all day long, and I've been doing it for 30 years, is chorionic villus sampling done typically at 11 or 12 weeks rather than waiting until 16 weeks for an amniocentesis. At 12 weeks, in general, nobody has to know the patient is pregnant unless she chooses to tell them because it's not visible. Mm-hmm. By the time you'd be 16 to 17 weeks pregnant, had an amniocentesis, got the results back, you're visibly pregnant. Everybody and their brother knows it. You're, you, can, you may have felt the baby moving. The ultrasound bonding is accelerated. And consideration of a very traumatic event of do I want to continue or not continue an abnormal pregnancy in an otherwise very much wanted pregnancy Needless to say, can be very problematic from a lot a lot of different perspectives. It is. It's uh, it is. It's it's a special form of hell. Quite you know. It's just yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Anybody who's going through it. Well, it's really so, no different, frankly, than the woman who's had a, a long-standing infertility history and now all of a sudden has quintuplets, and we have to face the same issue about reduction, which of course we do all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a bitter irony that that you know it's nothing, nothing, nothing. Whoops, we have too much to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the risks of of CVS, and what are the risks of amniocentesis? Is CVS more risky than amniocentesis? In unexperienced hands, yes. In the most experienced of hands, no. The best data have suggested that the risk of both procedures in the very best of hands is about 1 in 300. There are people out there touting that the risk of amniocentesis is 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 1,500. The data actually show quite the opposite. On the other hand, those same people tend to say, oh, the risk of CVS is 2 to 3%, and that is also nonsense. That inexperienced hands, they're both about 1 in 300. I personally do more CVSs on twins, triplets, and quads than we even do on singletons. You know, as we've discussed in previous shows we're not going to go through today, we tend to do CVS at about 12 weeks, run molecular testing overnight to look for uh, trisomy 21, 13, 18 in the sex chromosomes, get the results back the next afternoon, and do the reduction the second day, which we believe is the best, best approach to doing it. But the bottom line is when you know what you're doing, have a lot of experience, it is procedurally just as safe to do CVS as amniocentesis, and particularly in a multiple pregnancy, even a woman who has twins and is not thinking about reducing, doing the diagnosis early so that if there is a problem discovered, she can then think about having the reduction when it's safer to do it at 12 weeks than it is to do it later. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. So those and so that is those are testings that are done once the woman and that is and you prefer, you prefer that, um, but that does require a woman who is willing or at least thinks she would be willing to terminate a pregnancy. Not, necess- not necessarily. I mean, the information that we're here to provide, we're here to provide information. What a couple chooses to do with that information is their decision. We well, have that's found. Point, but then you could argue why no, if you're not going I'm, to do I'm anything about, about it. I'm about, to, I'm about to tell you. Oh, okay. Because number one, I have seen couples who were adamant tell me a you know toenails out of place and I don't want it, who wind up keeping a baby with a serious disorder. I have seen couples who come in saying I don't care what it is we're keeping it, who wind up reaching a different conclusion when we find an abnormality. What it allows couples to do is, in the vast majority of circumstances, to be have their anxiety tremendously relieved that everything is normal. Uh, when we do find a problem, it allows them to at least prepare for it. Right. That's, and in and many cases, it can alter how the rest of the pregnancy is managed. For example, if we find a baby with a significant cardiac problem, instead of having that woman deliver in a community hospital and have to be taken by ambulance or, hosp- or by ambulance or helicopter to a, a major pediatric uh, center to care the baby, you're going to have that woman deliver in that major center to begin with with all the subspecialists waiting for for the baby. Exactly. Well, and, and there's even a possibility, I think it may be not as, as uh, a great, a, uh, the percentage is not as great as we might like, but there is a possibility of doing uh, surgery on the fetus uh, yes, in fact, I'm, I'm actually, in fact, I'm actually one of the pioneers of that. I was part of the team that did the first open fetal surgery for diaphragmatic hernia in, 19, in 1989. Now, that is so cool. The, the number of things we can fix are still quite limited. Yeah. Okay? I don't mm-hmm. want people to run out and think we can fix everything we find. However, the generic principle that I've come to believe in very strongly, regardless of what your position is on the pro-choice, pro-life dichotomy, is better knowledge sooner is better. You know, let's not play ostrich. Let's know what we're dealing with. If we have a baby we're expecting with a serious problem, let's be prepared for the baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that most people, well, I shouldn't say. Some people would rather not know, but I think preparation um, it can at least, uh, it, 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 uh, you go through some of the grieving and, and then moving into the more dealing with it stage before the baby actually arrives. Uh, and then can uh, approach the birth with uh, the joy that that it deserves. Here's a question that we uh, received uh, from one of our audience. I've heard that there are a lot of aneuploidies that correct, presumably by further non-disjunction and selection, such that even though a biopsied cell taken from a three-day embryo may be abnormal by all chromosome CGH, CGH, sorry, testing, there may, may still be a chromosomally normal pregnancy resulting. Is this different for day five biopsies, as I assume it to be? Specifically, what is the rate at which embryos identified as abnormal from a uh, trifectoderm biopsy will actually yield a chromosomally normal inner cell mass and future baby? Good, good question. We don't have the very, very accurate data to answer that question, but the Dr. Hughes study, to my mind, is the real answer, is that, you know, in his case, 20% of of embryos that would have been thrown away turned out to be normal babies. Or, sorry, 20% of pregnancies that had normal babies would have been thrown away. That's that's the more correct way of saying it. Yeah, he did the reverse. Yeah, he was looking at it after birth. Now, what it's going to be with these newer, later tests remains to be seen. I'm sure it's going to be better, but it's never going to be perfect. 
And that's the reason I like the more traditional methods later on when you have millions of cells rather than just a handful at the most to go after, to, to use for the diagnosis. Yeah. Is there a, uh, um, uh, speaking of, of getting just a few cells, which is what we do when we are biopsying for pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, um, is there a... Uh, is there what is the risk uh, to the embryo, and does it matter whether we're doing it at day five or day three? The answer, uh, and this is not my area of expertise, is that the risks are low but not zero. Uh, as people are moving into the era of doing biopsies later and automatically freezing the embryo and transferring a month later, they will become better yet. Uh, but the point mm-hmm. is they're never going to be zero, and there's always going to be big variation among centers as to how good they are. Have we done any, has there been any research, and I'm guessing it was certainly not going to be long-term research because we haven't, we don't have enough children having been born after having this procedure done when, when they were fetuses or embryos, but has there been any research that you know, we have to be short-term, on the long-term potential risks to children who were who had uh, PGDs uh, done when they were uh, three day embryos or five days? Uh, none that's really been seen. None that's really been seen. Uh, the one the, there's one topic I want to make sure we get into before we run out of time. Yeah, I know. There's so many I want to get into, but go ahead. You, you okay. get yours, which, and then I have mine. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, <laughs> which which is the 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 booming field now of free fetal DNA called non invasive prenatal screening. Where okay. women are said, well, if you if we do a blood test after ten weeks, that we can tell that you uh, do not have a baby with Down syndrome to an incredibly high per- percentage, and the studies have suggested that the chance of uh, the sensitivity of finding Down syndrome can be as much as ninety nine percent, and people are, are in many cases not having more traditional genetic testing because they have been reassured that their NIPT NIPS has been normal. The problem with that. Ninety-nine percent chance uh, successful. Then why would you worry about it? Because, because uh, first of all, it's not that accurate. Second of all, because it goes back to what we said very early on. People talk about Down syndrome, but they mean anything. Now, oh, yeah. another major change you mentioned array CGH as part of the PGD. It's also being used on CVS and amniocentesis. A recently published NIH national collaborative study has shown that in pregnancies where there is no abnormal history, no abnormal ultrasound, and the patient is just there for a CVS or an amnio because of her age, and the karyotype, the regular testing, is normal, that we are finding in at least 1 in 200 such patients a smaller deletion or duplication that is guaranteed to be problematic and includes many serious disorders that produce mental retardation, et cetera, that we have no other way of finding. And so by not having the CVS or the amnio with the microarray, patients are missing an opportunity to find those disorders and I believe are being falsely reassured. Everything is fine when, in fact, they've been reassured about only one segment of the, of the problems. And so there has been a massive reduction in people saying, I don't need to have any procedures because they can tell me this by a blood test. And, in fact, it's going to turn out that we're going to be missing a whole bunch of things we could have found otherwise. 
Okay. Now, my turn. Uh, yes, yes, we've ma'am. gotten a, a couple. I like it. I like being called yes, ma'am. Yeah, it makes me feel like I have power here, uh, especially by uh, by you. Given my introduction of you, you know, boy, talk about blowing away by uh, by uh, accolades there. Um, we got a couple of questions uh, on the ability to, but they're saying prevent, but but uh, reduce the risk of miscarriage um, by doing uh, genetic testing up front uh, on the embryos. Um, how sophisticated is the, and, and I know that, that ASRM last year there were a number of papers presented on this topic, how sophisticated are we at being able to address the miscarriage risk through genetic testing? There are data that are suggesting that the miscarriage risk of pregnancies after IVF can be reduced by this testing, but it's got a long way to go. Yeah, that's what I think. Um, it, it seems like, and, and uh, do we know? Do we have a feel for how how good, how much improvement we can get um, by doing? Um, I guess. Well, I guess the other option. It doesn't really matter if you've had a lot. Maybe it's worth the risk of. It's worth the cost of doing it, just even for if the right. this is percentage increases. Te- These are expensive technologies. And for some couples, lowering their miscarriage risk 10 or 15% may be worth a couple thousand dollars it might cost. For others, it may not be. Uh, and it's an individual decision. But should it be routine for everybody? No, I don't think so. We don't have the data to prove that yet. It's not. We don't have the data that would say it would support it. Uh, and it's still a bit of an art, that the, the business of picking the best embryo to transfer. Right. It's, it's a, not, not a bit of an art. It's, a lot, it's mostly art as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, yeah, you were calling the spade a spade there on that one. Um, why do we have to, uh, changing, uh, shifting gears here, why do we have to wait uh, until the 16th to 17th week to do amniocentesis? I mean, that we is don't. True. We don't. You just earlier. Well, that's true, but why not uh, Why not do what, let's see, CV, the, the difference is you're sampling with CVS part of the... Uh, go ahead. The CVS samples the placental tissue. Mm-hmm. Amniotic fluid samples the fluid that's in the cavity, which includes cells that are shed off from the baby's skin and peed out from the kidney, and early on gestation come from the membranes. There were there were big attempts back in the uh, late 90s to, quote, do the, quote, safer test earlier by moving amniocentesis much earlier, and what right. they found was that the pregnancy loss rate was much higher than CVS, and uh-huh. whereas people were concerned that babies born after CVS might have limb defects, which they don't, that babies born after, that amniocentesis done too early had a high risk of clubfoot. So the safe test was dangerous and the dangerous test was safe. Now, having said that, any time after nine weeks somebody's in my office, there's a test I can do for them to get an answer. The question is which test is best. That's all. And is uh, pushing CVS earlier, is that an option? Well, we tried pushing it down to six and seven weeks, and that's for those in in the guy who invented CVS, Bruno Brambati from Italy, has a large religious Catholic population at high risk for thalassemia. And although under Catholic theology, the second you're pregnant, no abortion, these people wanted their answer and they wanted it early, so he began doing CVSs as early as six or seven weeks and found that when he did them that early, there was an increased risk of pregnancy loss rate and limb problems. In the United States, the group that's most affected by this is the Orthodox Jewish population for whom under Orthodox Jewish law, 
the borderline between abortion and no abortion is not conception, but it's 40 days post-conception, which is seven and a half weeks by menstrual dates. And so a few of us began trying to, as a service to this community, do the procedures early, because if you have a couple who are carriers for Tay-Sachs disease, lethal disorder, 25% risk, and their only reproductive choice option is to do it early, even a somewhat increased risk would be tolerable. But in fact, what happened to a friend of mine was he took care of a couple, pregnancy one fine, two fine, three fine. In number four, she had one of these limb reduction defects, turned around and sued him, oh, I didn't know, which is absolute nonsense. And the rabbis sat on their hands, which was also nonsense. And basically, you know, we said we're not about to put our family's livelihood at risk when you guys aren't willing to stand up for us. And so we had to abandon it, unfortunately. All right. So technically it is possible, but but um, have there been studies on children having uh, had uh, CVS, uh, long-term studies to know, at, at say, nine weeks, eight weeks? Oh, they do fine. Absolutely fine. Just like everybody okay. else. So the the CVS has been around is, since the 80s. It's been around for 30 years. All right. So the risk is primarily uh, at is, is pregnancy loss, which, as you've pointed out, is a relatively low it's, risk. Right. What I think to... What, the way I describe it to most patients is, look, in the middle 99% for most people, it doesn't matter whether we do anything or not, everything's going to be fine. The question that each couple has to decide is, if I'm going to be wrong, which way would I rather be wrong? Would I rather take a small risk of having a baby with a serious disorder versus a small risk of having a complication because I wanted to know that? And you literally have to play one worst-case scenario off against the other because, mm-hmm. frankly, the middle doesn't count. You know, it, it comes down to tell me what you fear the most, and I can reduce that at the expense of something else. Mm-hmm. And then psychologically, but a risk associated with the something else, yeah. Well, the risk is miscarriage. Okay? Right, exactly. And, and it comes. It also comes down psychologically to another question: of Would you rather get into trouble for something you did, or for something you didn't do? Oh, that's an interesting one. Right, and, and there's no right answer to that. It's, 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 no, it, there each isn't. Couple, each couple has to internalize that and decide where they want to put their risk. Yeah, that's a, And that's yeah, why this right. can't be done cookie cutter. It has to be done individualized. Yeah. Yeah, and so how does, uh, what are the questions somebody would, should ask in determining who is going to do any form of their genetic testing, be it, let's start with uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, preconception, be it uh, 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 well, well routine, regular yeah. obstetricians can order and should order most of these routine Mendelian screening tests, so okay. that none of this comes as a surprise. Uh, in terms of the actual pregnancy evaluation, the principal question couples should be asking is, how much of this do you do? You know, 25 years ago, Kentucky Fried Chicken had as a campaign slogan, "Do one thing and do it right." We can quibble about the chicken, but the concept was correct. I mean, I tell patients, look, I'm an obstetrician like your obstetrician. I'm also a geneticist. But at this stage of my career, I don't do hysterectomies. I don't do C-sections. I haven't done a pastor in 20 years. You know, this the type of stuff we're talking about, this is what we do all day long. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, you uh, need to find someone who does. Would a good question be to ask, uh, before you go to somebody to do, uh, especially CVS, I guess amniocentesis is, is pretty routine at this point. Well, again, that, no. As far as I'm concerned, it should be done by people who do a lot of them. This okay, is not so que- something that is optimally done by people who do one a month. All right. So the question to ask is, 
how many uh, of this procedure, be it CVS or amniocentesis, um, do you do, and, and what number do you would you feel comfortable uh, for somebody looking for? What number would you want to have somebody do ha- have done before you use? I them? want somebody who does this as their primary source of uh, practice. And I don't want somebody who dabbles in this. Now, obviously, if you're in Wyoming, when you have one perinatologist for the entire state, that's a different story. But if you're in Manhattan, if you're in Manhattan where I am, and there are people, there are a few people who do what I do, which is this all day long, that's where you want to be going, as far as I'm concerned. Right. And well, and and, and there's probably some. Uh, so let's take in between. Choose any city that's not New York. Uh, there probably are. And what is the specific specialty? Is there a specialty? Well, they're is both, there a sub-specialty? both obstetrical geneticists and maternal fetal medicine specialists who tend to do these procedures. Okay, so those are the two specialties that people... Right. Um, okay, perfect. Okay, well, I can't believe we have come to the end of our hour when I still, I could be talking about this forever. Uh, thank you You'll so much. You'll give us something to talk about in the future, though. that's fine. Well, there, you know, you are you're exactly right. Let me take a moment to thank one more of our gold sponsors and uh, remind everybody that it's through their generous support that we can bring you this show and all the resources uh, that are provided by Creating a Family, and that is Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm bank, and they ship donor semen and semen storage or semen, donor semen, to more than 65 countries. Again, thank you, Dr. Evans, for being our guest today. If you want to participate in a discussion on the topic of this show, uh, our audience can check out my blog tomorrow at uh, creatingafamily.org. If you want more information about Dr. Evans or if you want to see his uh, website, is full of great information, and I strongly recommend using it as a resource for you uh, if you are on this journey. I usually just type in comprehensivegenetics.com. Uh, uh, Mark, does that get you, that will get you there that as gets well. You there. You, Absolutely, it gets you there. Yeah, it, that's the that's what I usually do. Uh, or as you can go to the service provider page of our site and click on his name or comprehensive genetics name, and it will take you to his site as well. Thank you so much for listening to us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages or situations.